Hey, what's up, everybody? It's your boy, MJ, and I'm going to tell you about my number one secret when I shop for wine. The best strategy is to look at the back label and look for a trusted importer. And one of the most trusted names in wine for the past 30-plus years is Skernick Wines and Spirits. Since 1987, the Skernick brothers, Michael and Harmon, have scoured the earth looking to find super high-quality wines of distinction and then bring them back into the United States so that they can be available to you at your local store or restaurant. The company is headquartered right here in New York City, but they are also a direct wholesale distributor in eight states, including New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and last but definitely not least, my beloved wine home of California. They also import many wines that are sold in all 50 states through their partner distributors. I recently interviewed Harmon Skernick right here on the Black Wine Guy podcast, and let me tell you, these guys are the real deal. If you want to learn more about Skernick Wines and Spirits, please have a look at their awesome website. It's www.skernick.com. That's www.skurnik.com. Or you can even give them a call at 212 212- 273-W-I-N-E. That's 212-273-WINE. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the Mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, everybody, what's up? It's your boy, MJ, and welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is owner and winemaker of Monte Rio Cellars, Patrick Capiello. Uh, Patrick has been the food and wine host for Playboy, which we are definitely going to talk about, um, as well as being a founding member of Winemakers and Sommeliers for California Wildlife Relief. He has over 30 years of experience in the restaurant industry, which I can't believe because he looks so young and he just has great youthful energy, you know, making me feel like an old man. Um, but his wine career has given him access to four of the world's greatest wine cellars all of which have been recipients of the Wine Spectator's Grand Award, Tribeca Grill, Veritas, Gilt, and Pearl and Ash. Uh, he was named Somali of the Year 2014 by Food and Wine Magazine, Wine Person of the Year 2014 by Imbibe Magazine, and Psalm of the Year 2015 by Eater National. Uh, Patrick resides on both coasts. He lives in New York City's Lower East Side, and he lives in Sonoma County out in California. He is an avid wino, wino. He's an wow. He's an <laughs> average. Listen, you know how we do the show. It's wino. It makes sense. He's an avid vinyl record collector. He enjoys traditional Mexican tacos, beer in a can, and Irish whiskey. And I just found out he's sliding down the mezcal train right now. Uh, welcome, Patrick. Is there anything else you'd like to add? There's nothing else. It's all that's all a lot of information there. Thank yeah. You. So I just got on record. <laughs> Literally, we only had a sip of wine, so that was just that that. You know, I sip. Sometimes I slip. 
All right, Patrick, tell us about the wines we're going to be drinking this afternoon. Yeah. Um, so we're tasting three different wines that um, Monterio Cellars makes. The first is what we call our skull, the skull wine. Uh, so we make now we're currently making a red and a white, and we can talk more about the future of that mm-hmm. brand. But that's kind of be, going to slowly become its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a price. It's a, a wine that's really represents a great value. Eighteen bucks retail. This particular blend for this vintage is Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, French Columbard, Riesling, and Claret. Oh wow! Which was kind of an experimental blend for the first. This is the first year we made the white. Mm-hmm. And then um, we make a red blend as well. And then we're drinking two kind of more classic California wines. We're drinking a Chardonnay mm-hmm. that comes from the Redwood Valley in Mendocino. Mm-hmm. A little win- little vineyard, vineyard, a little vineyard <laughs> called. I've been drinking too much too. A little vineyard called uh, Hawkeye. Um, and then uh, Mission, which is the oldest uh, varietal planted wine varietal planted in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty special part of American uh, the California. And American wine uh, history. So that's yeah. very cool. It's uh, so, you know, I actually did an IG live with. Um, uh, oh my god, I, feel, I would think I've been drinking all day. What the hell's going on? Today? Well, I can guess. I it's totally about Mission for Rock or no, it's, Tegan. What, no, no, it was a uh, Redwood Valley. Oh, Redwood, Redwood Valley. Oh, okay. So cool. it was a uh, Randy Meyer bar of, bar of Mendocino, and they okay. get, and they get a lot of grapes out of Redwood Valley. Out of Redwood Valley, yeah, yeah. And, and so I I they were like, yo, it's a great appellation, everybody, you know. Um, and then, uh, yeah, what mission? I know that's Tegan. That's you know that's, that's Tegan. Yeah, this vineyard, I Brock uh, um, Brockway from Brock Cellars. Okay, uh, he's the one who introduces the farmer. He makes from that vineyard. Yeah. There's like two other producers. Pax makes a little out of there too, mm-hmm. but Tegan's is vineyard that he works with is up in Amador, mm-hmm. and Raj. Vosh Power gets a little from that one at that vineyard yeah. too and makes a little bit. So there's a few of my friends that, that make mission. Yeah, I mean it's like it's like a handful of you guys doing a, a lot of really funky stuff. Yeah. You know? So I you know yeah kind of. Playing in the, in, the, in the sandbox together. So, yeah. man, listen, uh, I'm glad you're here. It's going to be a lot of fucking fun. We had a, <laughs> we had fun warming up, yeah. you guys. Um, so let's just start at the beginning, man. Um, heard you grew up in Greece. I did. I grew up in Greece, New York, yeah. Oh, man, you were supposed to let that slide a little longer. <laughs> okay. I was supposed to like, oh, yeah, oh not... wait, wait. No, I'm sorry. Greece, Greece. New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Which> yeah, <laughs> I blew it up. I'm sorry. So yeah, it's I... a suburb of Rochester. It is. Um, tell us about growing up in Greece, New York. It was, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I used to I used to think that it was not an, an, an extraordinary, you, you know, kind of story of youth. I kind of grew up like everybody else around me and spent most of my time on a skateboard. Or stealing wood from, you know, housing development sites to make ramps. <laughs> um, you know, I went to a public high school and after I graduated, just to, you know, went on to college. I did, I did kind of did what everybody else did. You know, it was uh, go to the mall on the weekends, you know, get into a little bit of trouble, you know, oh, camp, yeah. camping oh, yeah. sometime. Oh, yeah. it, 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 I mean, I think when I, th- I thought everybody else lived that same life. And now, and then, you know, because you live when you live in that type of a community. And then, you know, as my life went on, I lived in Cleveland for a few years and I moved to New York, which I lived for 20 And now I understand that my life was very sheltered and, you know, mm-hmm. it was very – I grew up in a pretty religious family by a very loving um, set of parents and some great siblings. But uh, never felt like my place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, was um... – was 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 Greece, New York? Was that kind of informed by Eastman Kodak? Because I know that was the big corporation there. So yeah. did, everybody kind of was that. Did your father or mother? So or? my uncles, my one of my one of my uncles, two of my aunts worked for Kodak. Mm-hmm. My other, uh, my father and mother, my mother, my other uncles and aunts worked at Xerox. And there was so there was three companies that we worked for. If you were lived in lived in Rochester, either worked for Kodak, Xerox, or Bausch and Lomb. Okay, they were all headquartered there. Yep. So you know, very and you know, it's. 
kind of an amazing thing because all, all of those companies were so based on technology that now is so antiquated. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they've been blowing, they're still blowing up buildings for the Kodak owned and trying to clean up the mess of all the chemicals that were dumped in the river. And yeah, it real, that, I guess that, you know, it was, so yeah, there was, there was definitely, it's a huge community. The greater Rochester area is, is enormous. You know what I mean? It's it's tons of suburbs. The downtown area is, is small, but you know, it's really, it's spread out kind of like Atlanta or, or Denver, or I'm trying to think of other places that are like that, you know, Houston, like yeah. big, S- sprawling, yeah, sprawling kind of things. I would say LA, but that would be giving Rochester a lot of credit. That was in the back of my head. But I was like, you can't, you can't go there. I would never, I would never compare <laughs> Rochester to LA. So, so you said, like you said, you said, so um, you really realized you were kind of sheltered. Um, mm-hmm. What was your? I mean, so besides skateboarding and building skate ramps with stolen wood and. <laughs> Um, like, like I what, shouldn't have gone on record with that. But. Ah, come on, man. I'm sure the statute of limitations is run on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what were some of your early uh, aspirations? Like, like you said, you went off to college. Like, um, like, did you know what you wanted to major when you went off to college? Or well, I went to three different colleges. The first college I went to was a community college, and I changed my major there a bunch of times. I was a social work major for a while. Then I was doing something called American Studies. I don't know what, why, that, what that was. And then I went through a really intense – I had kind of this moment of really kind of – my, my religious background I always kind of ran from as a kid. Okay. So I was in and out of it, in and out of it, in and out of it, always rebelling, always kind of coming back. Always, and I kind of had this moment mid-college where I had this kind of coming to God moment and I decided that I wanted to like change my life and be a minister. So I, I went to a Bible college for six months uh, for one semester, which, which – um, led me to think that maybe that was a bit extreme. So then I kind of leveled it out and I went and I transferred to Roberts Wesleyan, which is a liberal arts college in my hometown. And I uh, started in the philosophy and theology um, uh, department with the idea that maybe if I still was interested after I graduated college, I would consider going to the seminary to become a minister or a priest. That was kind of my my, okay, my, so my, my move. Yeah. I got to ask. So my mother was Joel Witness. So, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. So I grew up just like. Yeah, yeah. No birthdays, no Christmas, yep. no Easter, right. no holidays, knocking on people's doors and shit. Oh my god! Yeah. Well, but actually, people are like, "Why do you? Why are you such a good public speaker?" Because I've been doing this shit since I'm like six years right. old. You know, calling, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, <clears throat> like, so what was your religious background? Like, what what was what was your parents? Well, faith? It, it, it was a lot. It's multi layered. It's kind of amazing. My we I my I, my dad was Catholic when I was born. Okay, and then by the time my sister was born after me, he had four kids and he had enough, so he was ready to get things situated downstairs okay, so, so he, had, so he had, had more kids ch- <laughs> so back then in the 70s yeah, yeah. if you wanted to have a vasectomy you had to leave the church so he he actually decided he was going to leave uh, catholicism and then um uh we converted to lutheranism so okay. i kind of grew up in a lutheran church and then as i got towards my high school years he kind of got more into like pentecostalism and born again like really mm-hmm. intense things so that started going around me and that was part of kind of like integrated in me that's why i went to a bible college because i was kind of i was always all of it you know my dad is one of the most important people in my life and he loves me so much and has, has raised me as well as he could with the tools he had um but uh you know for sure i think he was always trying to push me into this thing that, that he that made him feel the way that he did about god mm-hmm. and so i think that i was always on the fence because it was somebody that you trust and you and you realize that you should be like you it's always that conflict right mm-hmm. where, where, like trusting your parents and finding your own path mm-hmm. 
And so in so many ways in my life, I realized that I, that, that has tainted me in, in good and bad ways. But so, you know, I, at some point I just needed to make my own decisions. So, but, but the one, my, as a kid, I would often spend weekends with my grandmother who was super Catholic. So Catholicism, and I would go to, to mass with her. So, I mean, I'm covered in religious tattoos yeah. and most of them are saints or mm -hmm. so, and because there was something about the iconization of the way that the church looked. And when I, when I went to mass with my grandmother, the smell of the incense, everything about the Catholic church was so enticing to me. And, and I always had this draw to it, even though I was going through all these other phases of religion in my life, mm -hmm. it was the thing that I always felt the most strong about. So once I came to fruition, not, I mean, my understanding of God and my religion now is mine. It's not, it doesn't define by any church or any, mm -hmm. or any, mm -hmm. or any, or any dogma or anything like that. But a lot of it has to do with the, with the good experiences that I had with my grandmother and, and the good things that I found that the Catholic church taught me, you know, and the, and I think, you know, as we said, we talked about, you know, the person I would most like to have a bottle of wine with. Yep. I think Christianity, you know, it's based on ethics that are important. Mm -hmm. Loving, lo love, you know, loving people unconditionally and mm -hmm. kindness and, mm -hmm. and, and charity and all of the things that, that we should be focusing on. But unfortunately, the human race has polluted mm -hmm. what maybe was something pure mm -hmm. in, 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 its, in its form. Mm -hmm. uh, wow, this is not about wine at all. <laughs> Welcome to the Black Wine Guy experience. Pulled on I feel like I'm just crying. <laughs> my therapist, I mean, I'm just going to yeah, need a couple you know, weeks off for me now. Exactly. You know, <laughs> saved a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> um, Wish. No, but you know, so, but it's, it's, it's like, I, I get it. Like, that's the thing. Like, I'm like, I, I had, I had not a love hate with my mother, but she was like my nemesis. You know what yeah. I mean? But she was so important. So, so, and my mom was just like the, the best person in the world. Like, you know, like, like, um, and you know, she went through like all these religious transformations, you know, she was like, she, she was Baptist and then she was Episcopal and then she became a Jehovah Witness, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and it's, and, and, you know, and, and when I was in California, I used to go to Agape and I was going to become a new thought minister for a second. So it's so wow. funny. Like, I've like, Amazing. I, like, like, you know, so like, yeah, yeah. um, and the same thing, I'm like, when you break it down, yeah, this is people like, I'm not going to listen to this show ever again. I'm talking about religion. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm going to start cursing I, I, and talking I, I, about all kinds of gnarly know, right? shit soon. Everyone. But, but, we'll like, get far away from but this. It's, but it's funny when you come from that, when you, you can, there's a lot of ways you can go when you come from like that really intense religious experience. You can, you like, you know, you're just trying to work it out, right? And so like, I was like, you know, at the end of the day, like what you said, it's like, uh, you know, what did you say? Love one each other, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and, and what do you say? Keep doing this and remember to me. What were they doing? They were eating and drinking wine. So let's get back <laughs> to drinking some fucking wine. <laughs> I love it. So that was Rochester, New York. Yeah, so that was Rochester, New York. So, um, <laughs> so um, I read um, where you told Eric Azimov an article for the Times that um, growing up you never left the Eastern time zone. Right. Mm. Um, what kind of exposure to food and wine did you have growing up? None. I mean, not wine was not on the table. Um, my grandmother may have had a bottle of Lambrusco in the fridge. Um, or my parents would have like white, I'd say white Zinfandel was always in my, in my fridge. In fact, I make white Zin for Monterio. Mm -hmm. One of the, a, a lot of, you, you'll see in a lot of my, the way that my, the brand, the way that I make wine, the way my, my wine career has always been very much based on my limited experience of it. Mm -hmm. But also the fact that I kind of love that, that, you know, there's so many great things about white Zinfandel. 
and and that, so that would have been the thing that I had that I had most contact with as a kid. Okay, was white Zan. If, if if it was wine, food. My, I mean, I mean, you know, my mom just passed not you know in the past year, so I feel safe that I can say she was a terrible, terrible cook. I'm sorry, mom. <laughs> uh, I love you, but I, but uh, she was a terrible, terrible cook. And you know, my and my dad didn't help the situation. You know, on the barbecue, everything would come off, just burn to a crisp. Uh. So all my siblings and I really love food, and we're really into cooking now because I think that we had such a bad example of it. But right. so so I think that's the cool thing. Like right? even though I didn't grow up with great great food on the table. And, and wine, it actually made me makes me appreciate it more than I think for my friends that I have that did grow up in families where their their dad had a cellar or right. you know their their, right. their mom was a chef or, or something like that. So yeah, yeah. No. but anyway, your answer to your question is not with a lot, not, no, not a good I mean, reference point. No, but yeah. it, it's the same thing. I mean, <clears throat> my mom was a good cook, but she cooked kind of bland. My father didn't like spices, you know. So I mean, so we, you know, um, my wife, similar to you, my wife, um, you know, grew up with you know single father, not eating well. So like now she like. Is an incredible cook, baker, um, like, and even shit like like cloth napkins. I'm like, no, I'm, so, like, I'm like, see, I grew up having to wash dishes. Yeah, I'm like, I could eat off a paper plate right <laughs> every freaking day. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, it's, like, it's, it, and she like, like, literally, she like takes the food and puts it in serving dishes, and it's like the two yeah. of them, and it's beautiful. Yeah, love it. But you know, I gotta wash dishes. <laughs> so, so, um. <clears throat> You, you talked about you went to these three different three different colleges yep. and, and and then you were nothing speaks reeks of hospitality in what you were majoring in. How did you uh, get into uh, the restaurant business? So my restaurant career started because um, I was 15. My brother, who was just old, just three years older than me, had been working as a busboy at a re- local restaurant in our in our town in Greece called uh, Crescent Beach Hotel, and he just always had cash. And I was like, you know, I'm like, you know, when you're when you're 15 and your brother's got cash, he's driving a car, you know what I mean? And I, you know, I'm like, I, I, I want, I need money to buy skateboard parts. I would, I want, you know, wouldn't mind getting a car. There was always something that I wanted. So you know, uh, so he got me a job when I when I turned 16 at at Crescent Beach Hotel as a busboy, and that was where it started. And I worked there for until I was old enough to serve tables. Uh, and then I jumped from there to working at a Chili's. They just opened a Chili's in my hometown. And I'd been to one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I was visiting my friend. And I always loved <laughs> – those was blown away about who Chili's was at the time. So I was a server at Chili's. And then in that experience, I learned very quickly that I could do a lot of things. I worked in the kitchen because I wanted to learn about it. I, I, I worked on the line as a fry cook, uh, grill cook. I started bartending. And that was when I kind of started to understand alcohol. And that's when I started to understand that maybe that I had something as far as like understanding flavors and smells more than most people. That was kind of when I had that aha moment. And that's kind of what got me interested in wine. So it was kind of that transition. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, my, my, my hospitality started there. And then it, it just continued on from there, restaurant after restaurant. So after you got your baby, baby back ribs, <laughs> um, where, where was your next job? Uh, well, so I, I I got married at that point. Okay. Yeah, and uh, it was just after college. I worked. I put myself through college working at Chili's. Okay. And then I uh, got married to my college girl girlfriend. Uh, we moved to Cleveland, Ohio, and that's when I started working at a restaurant called the Baricelli Inn. Okay. And that was where I got the I kind of I got my first exposure to wine. So the the Baricelli Inn was owned by a guy named Paul Manillo. And Paul uh, is Italian chef. Uh, um, the restaurants in Little Italy, but the cuisine was very New American. He went to like CIA. Okay. He's good friends with Don Pintabono, who used to be the chef at Tribeca Grill, which will be a connection as to how I wound up where I where I went. Mm-hmm. But so he had a wine cellar. He collected wine, and his wine cellar was the wine list. So we, we they had probably two hundred bottles of the wine, wines on the wine list. They had like Chav Blanc and old vintages of Sassacaya and Du Cru Bacayou and you know Moet and like like Don Perignon, like cool shit, like like and with age on it because it was from his cellar. And so 
the, the the reason I got into wine was because I was working at that restaurant. I was struggling. My, my wife was getting her master's degree at the time. My ex-wife was getting her master's degree at the time. And we, um, you know, we trying to put things together, working at this restaurant. And here's like, I see it wasn't a pooled tip house. Mm -hmm. So every server made their own money. And every guy I saw that was, or every other server, male or female that worked with me was always bringing home more cash to me. And I realized very quickly it's because they knew about wine and that, and so I was like, there's something in this. I got to learn about wine. So I talked to one of the guys, actually a kid named Nathan Wesley, who eventually became a senior editor at Wine Spectator. Okay. uh, A kid who followed me to New York and then wound up working with me for a while. He was the one who kind of became the first person that gave me a little push. And he recommended Kevin's Earliest Windows on the World as a book to read, which I tore that thing cover to cover, you know, trying to figure out how I could drink the wines that were in it because I couldn't afford anything, let alone, you know, mm-hmm. I, mean, I, barely, I could barely pay my rent and put gas in the car and keep my, you know, ex-wife going to school, let alone let alone drink expensive bottles of wine. So I was tasting as much as I could at the restaurant, studying as much, just trying to learn and learn how to talk about the wine. I think that because I'd been in the restaurant business for so long serving tables, I kind of had a natural transition to being able to sell wine. So that became kind of a, you know, sink or swim reasoning for doing it and then that was the the transition after after i left cleveland we were moving to new york and that was when don Pinto, uh, um, paul manillo who was at barrichelli and the owner said i know a guy named don pintabono he owns a restaurant with robert de niro and they have a cool wine program there's a guy that works there named david gordon who you should talk to they were all they were all part of continental airlines congress of chefs and sommeliers so, okay so that was how they all knew each other and then so i went in had an interview with david gordon and marty shapiro at tribeca grill and i was green as hell just fall off the potato truck you know what i mean in new york city 2001 and these two guys were like, okay, let's give you a shot. So I started off as a server and I used to work in between my lunch shift, my dinner shift. I'd go into the cellar and do inventory and help clean up and set things up and open boxes and put stuff away, just doing everything I could. David Gordon would always be generous and open bottles for me to taste and for myself and Yoshi Takamura, who was the other sommelier, or became the other sommelier there eventually. Um, and he just recommended all these books for me to read. And I would just go home and just read all these books and, you know, and taste all this wine and just focus on this, spend all my time in the cellar. Probably the reason why I'm no longer married. Because <laughs> I, <laughs> I transitioned from marriage to my wife to marriage to, to you know, to, to this idea of becoming, it's just, I was just fascinated by the idea. I never, I never, I never thought it was something I could do. And David Gordon's like, yeah, man, if you, if you stick to it in a year, you're going to be a sommelier. And within a year, um, we got the grand award from, from, from Wine Spectator. We needed a sommelier on the floor and David Gordon, um, had a meeting with the whole staff and there he was like, they're like, Patrick, you know, Patrick's put all this work in. We think he's ready. We want him to be the psalm. The staff voted for me to do it. So I was a full cut sommelier working on the floor of the first sommelier at Tribeca Grill. It's kind of wild. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, I mean, yeah. that, man, that's, that's some serious shit. Thanks. Like from, from Very like started. Greece <laughs> to Cleveland. Yep. To the first psalm at Tribeca Grill. Mm-hmm. Um, now, talk a little bit about um, – I'm, I'm going to table that question for a second. Um, so in the research, um, we read that one of the restaurants that was Pivotal Wine Journey was not what people expect, um, which I love because if people know my story, it's so weird and lucky and random. But um, tell me about the Pekin Duck House and what made that so important. <laughs> That's so funny. I was actually, I'm actually going there this weekend. Um <laughs> It was so that so Peking Duck House was was a cool experience because David David Gordon mm-hmm. and Tim Kopeck who were close friends and mentors. So David Gordon was the wine director of Tribeca Grill. Tim Kopeck, the wine director of Veritas. Those are the two restaurants that I went for the course of eight years, four years at each place, working under these guys. Just as a floor psalm, never right. bought a bottle of wine, just learning from them and selling wine and you know having great experience living in New York. But 
So these guys, Tim Kopeck used to work at Tribeca Grill, and when they they would go with like they would the, well the guy, most of the most of the guys that worked in the back of the house or or the or the back server situation at at, at Tribeca Grill were mainly Chinese Americans or Chinese immigrants mm-hmm. that because it was a big part of the part of Tribeca itself. So these guys are the ones that turned them on to Peking duck. I was like, if you want great Peking duck, and they would go and bring it to get the ducks from Peking duck so, and bring it back. And they'd have it like make family meal for all of the people that worked there. They'd, that was just cool, cool thing. So David Gordon and Tim Kopeck started going to Peking Duck House, and they allowed them to bring wine. No corkage like wine policy mm-hmm. there. So then that was kind of their holiday tradition. They'd go every year at Christmas time. They'd bring special bottles, and Yoshi and I would watch them go and be like, "Man, I wish someday we could do that." And then like after like two years, finally we were like invited to this magical moment to go with them. So then this became like the, the my journey at Peking Duck House. So. It just became this great place that when people were in town, you know, as a server, again, working as a server, even when I was a sommelier, I, would, I didn't I don't have a lot of money. And back then, in 2001, the only places you could drink great wine in a restaurant, you'd have to, like, wear a tie mm-hmm. and a jacket mm-hmm. and spend a lot of money mm-hmm. on dinner. Mm-hmm. None of those things I like to do. <laughs> uh, so, so, tre- so, so Peking Duck House became the the, the the solution. We could buy wines either wholesale from our restaurant that we wanted to drink or even retail, bring them into this restaurant, drink a really authentic, like delicious meal that it was very food friendly and share bottles with friends. And then it just kind of came this thing. And I mean, we, that, that tradition has carried on. Matt Conway, who we mentioned earlier, uh, Risto Zazowski, who was the Alta Maria uh, a wine director for a long, long time. Um, we all we would go there all the time together and, and share bottles. I mean, I, I can't imagine. I probably could look at my for my phone for as long as I've had an iPhone since it's probably 2004. You probably could look at that locator of Peking Duck House and see the bottles that I opened in that place with friends. I now probably would never even imagine drinking some of those. Some of those wines. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, what, what were some of the bottles? Um, you, I mean, you, Tim Kopeck once brought a bottle of. Um, Bomar from Rumier. He made a he made a he made a, a an old vine cuvee mm-hmm. in in just one vintage. It was just in ni- it was just in eighty eight nineteen eighty eight Bomar Vavine mm-hmm. from Rumier. That probably was probably the most special bottle that, that I that I ever tasted. I mean, but, but there was uh, there were other amazing. You know, I mean, we're going with like Pascaline Le Peltier and her bringing like Auvernois, like like really you know some just like there were random people that I, that I that I that I spent time with there that that just always it's always you know. Fun to see what people think that you, you should be eating with Peking duck. Yeah, I was gonna say what. So, what is your favorite pairing with Peking duck? It's always gonna be Syrah, but I, I would say that to everything. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I drink Syrah with sushi. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm similar. I'm like too big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like too big. Agreed. No yeah, such thing. Yeah. Um, see, now we're gonna have to go to Peking Duck House. Like, yeah, I'm down. Let's go. Yeah, man. I sure. actually still. I mean, I, I the, now it's a lot of the kids that are that are the servers there are like generation down from the guys that served us. Okay. So there's a server there that I actually have still in my phone. His name is Eric Peking Duck House. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> in my phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I and anytime I go, I just message him and he and he sets me up with a table and yeah, it treats us so well. It's great. So great. Oh, my God. Let's go. Yeah, man. Uh, we're going to hook that up. This is so dope. Um, so, you know, you've, you've talked a little about this, but now, so, you know, movies like the Psalm series and, and then, you know, which spawned a number of um, TV shows about uh-huh. Psalms, it, it, it makes it, listen, it shows it, it shows like, the, it makes it look really sexy, despite all the hard work. I think people are looking at the sexiness and the glitz mm-hmm. and not seeing all the hard work. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me now, 
Do you have any official certifications? No, I've never, 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 I've never taken one test. I've never taken a class. I know, I know, I couldn't. There were two reasons. A, I didn't, I couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. I, I like, like those, those exams are expensive. And when I was working on a budget that was just trying to keep my family in, intact, I would didn't have an option. Second of all, I didn't have the time. Like I had to be on the floor. So any time that I had learning was more about learning how do I be a better psalm for the guests on the floor that I'm working on. How do I know that? How do I master that wine list? How do I know how to speak? You know, um, about that particular list. And I think, I mean, I don't disrespect any way that anybody needs mm -hmm. to learn. If you need structure and that's the way that you get it, that's great. But for me, I think the other problem that I've always had with the court and with the master of wine is it's more about the theory of wine and not about the practicality and the actual experience of wine. Mm -hmm. Like so many MSs and MWs know so much about rocks and weather and valleys, but they don't know they don't think about half of the producers that, that make that make wine in those areas or how they make it. Mm -hmm. And for me, going to the cellar and visiting those wineries was more important way to spend my money and my time, as well as obviously I needed to you know keep myself alive. But but it, it never it never seemed like the right option for me, and it didn't seem practical for the job I was already doing. I was also very lucky, right? Yep. Not every Everybody has the opportunity with such little amount of experience to be working on the floor as a psalm. I never, ever once forget that. I know, I know my, where I came from, and I know how fortunate I am to have people like David Gordon and Tim Kopech who had complete faith in me to give me that chance that, that not a lot of people would have. I mean, it was right place, right time in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I feel like I worked for it, and I proved my 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 desire and my and my um, you know their trust. I, I I earned their trust, but for sure the certification was just something, and you know. It's just not me either. You know what I mean? I, I don't. I don't want to. It's just not who I am. But it, there's nothing wrong with it. I like. I'm no. Pascaline. I love. Although I don't. I don't even know who's at Master Sommelier anymore because everybody gave away yeah, their I pins. Know. So I'm not, yeah. I, I'm not sure who's who actually is. Uh, but Larry Stone would be an example right. of somebody who I met early on. Who is Larry is a brilliant individual, kind human being, unpretentious, just you know very generous. He's he's a, he's an amazing dude, and and I think he inspired a lot of the people that that I know, like Raj Parr and, and others who worked underneath Raj Parr were all inspired by Larry. So there there's some great things to be said about the court. Yeah, yeah, no, and and I think you hit a, a lot of great points. I mean, we had we had Kevin Zrelli on, and we're going you know on the show, and he. And I said, man, you're you're the godfather of wine education in America, and you ain't got no damn certifications. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, but it's but he did what you did. Like he was here's a guy, you know, you know his story. He's 20 years old. It's fucking just goes to California, shows up places, shows goes up uh, Bordeaux, just shows up mm -hmm. to get to get in there and learn. Yep, you know. And I think I think that um, it's just I love what you shared. I don't want to throw shit on anybody's path, but I think people need to understand like there's, there's, there's doing and, and, and being, and there's actually, and real learning, anything that really learned you have to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like your mom didn't give you a book and say, here, turn it, learn how to tie your shoes. You know, you don't right. get, like, like you have to, you yeah. got to do it. Chase the rabbit yeah, down the hole, exactly. whatever it is. Right, yeah. Right, yeah you know. <laughs> so, you know, so, <laughs> and then you also said something that's also very true because it's so many people now on social media and they, they got their WSET which I was saying that wrong. I got that, got corrected on that one. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, they're, they're one, they're two, and they're three. But they're also like, when they, like, people don't get like, that song movie is like, that's like, that's like the NBA, man. Can they're, I be honest with you? Yeah. I've never seen that movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I tried to watch it, and, and it's like, my friends are in that thing, like, and to see, like, Dustin, it's just like too weird. It was just, it was like a weird, <laughs> I was a weird, and then I was on the airplane once, I'm like, I'm going to watch this, and I turned it on, and I was asleep 20, 10 minutes like, into it. <laughs> 
<laughs> because I mean, that's like Coolsville. it's like yeah, it's like if there was a movie about. I'm sure like no doctors watch like I don't know um, the. I'm sure doctor, doctors like in the don't ER, watch. Probably right? Watch ER, right? <laughs> unless they yeah, rip it like, up, you know, you know? You know, yeah, that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. But no, I I never I never saw the movie. But anyway, yeah. So so but it, but it just I mean it it just spawned a hold of people like oh, I want to do this and I'm like but you know there's only so many Michelin star restaurants there's only so many jobs like like it's like trying to get in the NBA yeah and so it takes a lot a lot of luck. Like that, you know, and, and we've had people who talk about the fortune they've had, the good fortune they've had, you know what I mean? You know, Andre Mack talked about the good fortune he had. You For know sure. What I mean, um, so many people have talked about just the good fortune, like to fall into the job, right? Like find someone who like uh, believes in you, you know what I mean? Just sees, sees that spark. And I think you talked about like the hard work. You, you, you're coming to work early, staying late, working in the cellar, unpacking boxes. And, you know, as someone who works in education, and a lot of these kids don't want to put in the work. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean it's it's cha- it's challenging. I think I think you know when we when I opened Pearl and Ash, trying to find other people that wanted to rise to the level of kind of what I was used to in the restaurants I'd worked into, but in a casual, fun environment, was complicated. But I was very very lucky. There was a, a server there uh, named Kim Prokoshin who who she was working as a server at, at the restaurant that was there before Pearl and Ash. Somehow she wound up like just staying along with like the POSs and the. And the I don't know whatever you know the, 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 the tables and chairs. She was there. I walked in there when my, my chef friend was doing it. Like, this is Kim. She used to work at the old place. She's here now. And so and and she had an interest in wine. And I just like took her under my wing and I was like, if you want to learn, like let's do this. And like and like here's the first step. Put all that wine away. <laughs> and Kim was a workhorse. And Kim really helped change. You know, I mean, it was it was for me it was it was it was such an important thing. I felt like you know our industry has always lacked diversity. Mm-hmm. I mean, more than any industry that I've ever experienced. And and especially on the fact that when I was coming up, it was just white men. Mm-hmm. Let, I mean, so so there were a few women like, like you know, you had you had Karen King, um, who was at Gramercy Tavern at the time. I mean, who else was uh, other female? There weren't many female sums in 2001 when I was. Mm-hmm. So it was very important to me that we, that we helped to, to do that. And then Kim really taught me a lot about, you know, bringing in diversity in many ways. We had, uh, we had, Oh, an Asian girl that worked with us on the wine team. Um, and it was just, it's, we started, and then it was all, mainly all women. It was only, it was all women that worked, that worked for me at that point. Um, and that was mainly because Kim was connecting with other female servers and, t- and getting them excited the way that I, that I was. So to your point, it was hard to find people who actually wanted to right. put in the work yep. and actually put it in. But Kim definitely was one of the people that did that. So, yeah. 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 Well, speaking of Pearl and Ash, tell me a little bit about, um, <clears throat> access to like the, the wine cellars you've had access to over your career like you've had you won a lot of awards um uh individually but also involved with many um wine spectator grand award winning restaurants yep tell, tell me Pick tell me about those um some of the cellars you uh, had access to so you know tribeca grill was 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 tribeca grill was unique because the the, the cellar was really built on david's passion and it's like you know i i, I often will goof on you know, sommeliers that say that this is my point of view. And it's like, well, you're not like a winemaker. You're not, what are you, your point of view, nobody gives a fuck about your point of view. Just because you don't like Sancerre, like, like get over yourself, put a bottle of Sancerre on the wine list for your guests. They get your ego out of this, out, out of the equation. So, Tribeca Grill, not to, not telling the Dave that way, but David had a very particular, pa- he had passion. Mm-hmm. And for sure he was open to the, that was one thing that David always taught me, like, always have a bottle of Pinot Grigio on your wine list. Like that, that always have a bottle of Sancerre on your wine list. 
He only had one of each, and they were marked up a lot. But he was super passionate about chatting up the pop and California Napa, Napa, primarily Napa cabs. Robert Parker was really an inspiration to David. He really kind of was a big part of his learning experience. Mm-hmm. So the wine list really reflected what Parker was saying. And back in 2001, that makes total sense. And obviously, right, things right. have changed now. I mean, there are there are great, great wine critics like Asimov, like Galoni, that we that are still keeping up. You know that tradition of of getting people understand, educating people through wine crit, wine critique. Um, which is important, but Parker was very polarizing, right? And his viewpoint was one way. So that seller was very much affected by that uh, because of David Gordon. And then when I went to to Veritas, it was the same sort of thing. Robert Parker was a very good friend with Park B. Smith who owned Veritas. So all of Park B. Smith's seller was very heavily focused on those items. The thing is on the other side, there's a guy named Steve Verlin who was the other owner of Veritas. And Veritas is super special because it was two of the biggest collectors in the New York area who met through um, a chef named Scott Bryan and his partner, Gina DeFeria, who the four founding members of Veritas. And these guys would go to this restaurant. Um, I forget the name of Gino's, Scott's restaurant back in the day. Limpero? What the heck was it called? Ah, it's escaping me. But that's where they would go. They would BYO their own wines. They would let them BYO. And Steve and Park would come. They were totally different par- pal- palates. Park loved Chateau to Pop. Steve loved Burgundy. And then they were in this restaurant together. They met, got to know each other, and decided they were going to open this restaurant. But the fact that these guys had two totally different cellars that they were consigning to this one space made it a very diverse wine list. So we had everything that you could possibly imagine. Old California Cabernet right next to old you know, Grand Cru Burgundy, right next to old Champagne. And then you know everything you can imagine in between. So Tribeca Grill was a little more unique because Tribeca Grill was a seller that was being per, uh, wine that was being purchased by David Gordon. So it was pretty much his desire and his point of view. And then Veritas, which was Steve Verlin and Park B. Smith, who had these two sellers, and then Tim Kopeck, who was in the middle, kind of just f- filling in the gaps of the wine list for the kind of things that people wanted. So there was a little bit more. I learned I learned a lot by both ends of that. So that was kind of cool to, to to have that experience. And then by the time eight years was up and I was ready to start buying one and I got hired at Gilt at the New York Palace Hotel, I had the opportunity to utilize all of these mindsets of things that you're passionate about and things that people want and then things you have access to. So a lot of the consigners that were consigners at, Tribe, at Veritas started to came with me to Gilt and started consigning their wine at Gilt. So a lot of those same wines were on the wine list there. But then I now had this new opportunity of buying wine and I had always had an interest. There was a... There was a, I'm not going too far out of your out of your question. No, okay. man. <laughs> this is all about the stories, man. No. So there was a collector that is sadly no longer with us. Um, he was a good, really great friend of mine. He used to come to Veritas all the time. A guy named, a guy named Joe Doherty. And Joe was super generous. He would come in and bring bottles of Auvernois and old Cotat and all these cool wines that were natural wine producers or producers from the Loire Valley. I had no idea of because they weren't at Tribeca Girl. They weren't at Veritas. These mm-hmm. were super classic, you know, very Bordeaux, Burgundy, buttoned up. Napa Cab, they weren't like, you know, cool hipster farmer wines that you would see. So Joe would bring these wines in and I would taste them. And then as soon as I was out on my own and at guilt, I had the opportunity to all of a sudden, I now I could insert my point of view, even though it was something I was goofing on earlier. But I was still with the idea of utilizing these collectors and these old wines because I knew they were appealing to like the Wall Street guys. And then making sure that I took care of, you know, the soccer moms who were going to want Pinot Grigio. Mm-hmm. Like just trying to, you know, keep your wine list as friendly to as many people as you can. Wine is already intimidating enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you all of a sudden are making it more intimidating by by not giving people access to things that they're actually asking for, you're only doing damage to, to, to the wine industry, you know, at large. So this was kind of the, the way, but, but I 
was really interested in putting more natural wines on the wine list. And I'm in a two Michelin star restaurant in midtown Manhattan in a fancy hotel. And all of a sudden I decide I'm going to get hella passionate about <laughs> Beaujolais and Loire Valley wines. So Joe, Joe, Joe Doherty was like, you know who you need to be talking to is Lee Campbell, who I know was on your show. Yeah. And Lee, I met Lee when she worked for Joe, Joe Dresner. And Lee was for sure someone that really opened my mind to what was going on. She turned me on to so much cool stuff in the Dresner portfolio and other, and outside of that, her and Joe, Joe Dresner would come and see me. We actually, actually the last like kind of, kind of, appearance that Joe Dresner did before he passed away was a dinner that we did at Gilt. We did a natural wine dinner that like I could, could barely sell tickets to with all my friends that want to come in. Alice Faring sitting right next to Joe Dresner. They're yammering at each other, fighting like they always do and dragging me into conversations. At some point, Joe and her were talking about cork bottles of wine. He's like, Patrick, Patrick, do you ever ask for credit from your distributor for a cork bottle of wine? Because apparently Alice was saying that it was his responsibility to give credit for right. cork bottles of wine. And I was like, I'm not getting involved in this conversation. I'm like, never, Joe. I never fucking knew that, <laughs> even though I definitely had. And he's like, you see, I told you. People had... And like started yelling at Alice, you know, poor Alice, always, 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 always arguing with Joe. But anyway, so though that became kind of this new thing where – and then I had the opportunity to see how it did, did kind of work. There were people coming. It took a while. I mean, I wasn't on social media. I never, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a really great life in high school. I got beat up by most of the people I went to school with. <laughs> I didn't have many friends. I didn't want, the last thing I wanted was to reconnect with these bullies on Facebook. So oh I was never God. on Facebook. So uh, Raj Parr was in guilt and he was drinking, uh, God knows how many old bottles of white burgundy that were on the list. They're cheap. And he's like, dude, you need to get on Twitter. You got to be telling people about this thing that you have. And at the time, I was dating uh, I, my I'd, my ex wife and I had split up, and I was dating a girl who was a graphic designer. And I was super tight with all of our artist friends that lived in Williamsburg, and they were on Instagram at the time. So they were I was on Instagram, but it was like I was just taking pictures of street art yeah. and like whatever, yeah. like yeah. just to be me creating, trying to be creative, like right. all of my people friends were on it. And I was just there for that. There was no my feed was not wine bottles on Instagram back then. This is two thousand and this is when Instagram started two thousand and ten. It must have been ten. I think ten was yeah, when I like first posted. Ten or eleven. Yeah. I mean, I, I was I, on for I, like I, the I, first I go, year. I got on Instagram late. Yeah. Actually. So, I mean, nobody else, no wine people want it. Trust me. I, I never looked at a bottle. I only looked at beautiful pictures. Now all my fucking Instagram feed is all bottles of wine. Right. But so, that, but I, but I didn't, wasn't on Twitter and Raj made me get on Twitter and start tweeting about things that we were doing by the glass. And I started doing it and Raj would help me retweeting. Mike Madrigal was super generous with his help. So I started doing it. And then all of a sudden people started coming to guilt. I saw the power of that. So that made me realize that I very quickly would have to embrace that as part of being, you know, the future of yeah. the world. Yeah, yeah. And then that was when, you know, guilt closed. And then I, I wound up, uh, we wound up starting Pearl and Ash and it kind of all those things that I learned, I was able to bring there and there it made sense, you know, a, a, a kind of a loud, gnarly hipster wine bar on the Lower East Side with metal floors and no backs on the chairs and rock and roll music cranking natural wine made total sense there but then that was when it kind of didn't make any sense that i had like old drc on the list well too. yeah i mean, so, so, I mean like, let's like, talk about these worlds right so like like i mean like so because it's so funny lee came on she we, we didn't get a natural we didn't get a natural i gotta get her back on we didn't get a natural wine and 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 she's like she was like but I've heard from other people, like she was like in that underground natural wine scene. What, what, all about what, it. what is natural wine? Because like I'm still trying to fucking figure this out, yeah. man. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I think that once you once you uh, resign to the fact that there's no true definition of what natural wine is, that's that's the <sighs> most important thing to say because there's not legally a definition of it. And 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 ethically, there's not really a, d a definition of it because it's so it's so convoluted with dogma and, and opinion and religion and all the things that that make that make the world so such a difficult place to navigate is in natural wine and you know now it's become even more so because now there's you know become this almost this like like this mafia of natural wine like you know like in like like influencers or determiners who are, are going to try and call you out and 
it becomes now as a winemaker, yep. I can tell you it's even more complicated being on the other end of that because because okay. I feel like I, I you know how what I say about Monterio we make wines naturally. That's that that's my definition of what, of what we do, and and we we check every box to have our wines in raw. We do we I I will admit that we use sulfur when we need to. All the fermentations are natural yeast. All the all all the, you know we don't add any nutrients. We don't add any enzymes. We don't add any acid. Everything is it's just grapes that are fermented naturally. And if they need to have a little bit of guidance, we will use sulfur in very very small quantities. Anyway, well, I'm getting to no no beyond, still, beyond no it. it's not going to be yeah because this is this is the thing right you said like it. And I, I, you know, I, I have weird thoughts from time to time. The other night I had this thought, I was like, but I remember this thing when I was like in seventh or eighth grade called the periodic table of <laughs> elements, right? Yeah. The periodic table of elements, yeah, yeah. which is all the naturally occurring compounds on the earth that everything's made up from. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure sulfur is on that fucking chart. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it How have you put sulfur? I, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, yeah. it, it actually... I think it's, it's a this, naturally occurring thing. It is. I think it's this purest idea of doing nothing to wine because at some point somebody told somebody that this is how wine used to be made and therefore it should still be made that way. And there's plenty of things that were done uh, one way for a long period of time hey, that we don't want to get back exactly. at. Exactly. <laughs> Whether it's things we put in our body right. or the way we live our lives right. or the way we treat people. Yep. Just because something was something a way a long time ago yeah. doesn't mean it's something we should go back to. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will say this. If those motherfuckers had sulfur, they had to use, if they knew about it, they would have used it. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, for sure. They would have used it. I mean, they didn't know about it. It's it's and especially now where we're in a world that's hotter. Yep. And there's a lot of bacteria that breeds in warmer warmer situations, and we're making lure alcohol wines again. Like that's one of the things that that you know the people the community that I that I live with and work with and and trade ideas with are younger California winemakers that want to make lower alcohol, higher acid, food friendly wines. And alcohol is another way that you help keep your wine sanitized. When your wines are super high in alcohol, there's less chance that back, that funky, mm-hmm. fucked up shit's going to grow in the wine. Mm-hmm. And if you're not adding sulfur and your alcohol is low, you're only leaving your wine susceptible to tons of problematic things that can occur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> that, but 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 again, it's a definition of natural. I mean, if people now are hung up on sulfur, and they, and it's going to become it's it becomes it becomes a hot topic. And now some people are just we're only zero zero, and that's great. And you know what? I've had. I can count on my hand, one hand, how many zero zero wines I've had that actually aren't don't have a flaw. I don't I don't I don't believe that it's I really say within my heart of hearts that it's impossible to create a consistency in a wine in a winery without having some sort of control over what's happening with the fermentations. And the best and kind of only way to do that is 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 keeping things in line with small doses of sulfur. All right, so that's a good uh, point to stop. We got to take a quick break. Uh, hear from our sponsor. Uh, we'll be right back, everybody. Hey, hey, what's up? It's MJ again. Listen, we all love a sexy wine label, but the back label is more important. Do you want to know how to score a great bottle of wine every time? Turn that bottle around and look for the Skernick Wines logo. Skernick Wines has been one of my favorite portfolios since I came into the business over 20 years ago. Whether it's a $10 bottle or a $100 bottle, you can count on Skernick Wines to deliver every time. And it's not just about wine. They also have one of the finest portfolios of craft spirits. Make sure you go to their website, www.skernick.com, and check out their ever-evolving library of cocktail recipes. Listen, I don't say this lightly. Skernick is a name you can trust when it comes to wine and spirits. 
All right, we're back. So um, that was an incredible um, <laughs> long detour. I mean, I mean, we're not really going anywhere, but to the end of the conversation. But but like, didn't see that coming. But it was all great. Um, so, oh, what you said something there? Yes, you can count the number of zero zeros on one hand that you've had that are uh, that were good, right? Well, that have, that have consistency. Yeah, right, in the winery. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like winers, yeah. And and and. And that, to me, in my mind, reminds me of something you, you said earlier in the conversation about about um, the list being consumer friendly, right? Yeah. Like, because people don't want to handle. I mean, like, you want to be able to give your guests uh, a fairly predictable, reliable experience, no matter what bottle of wine they get. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And and um, so so that being said, how were you? How was that happening? Like, I mean, like you, you did. You were you're on Twitter. You're on Instagram. You you created like this natural wine bar thing going on. Mm-hmm. There. Like, how were what where what, what like what were the wines you were getting? How what were the criteria? How could you know what were you looking for in wines that you were putting on that list? Well, I mean, I I, I think that I was lucky enough. This was a time when maybe natural wine wasn't what it, where it is now. This is we started we opened in 2013, okay. and obviously natural wine existed. And sure. by this time, people like Zev and Kemi Rivera, as Everoven and other people were bringing in wines outside of Dresner, Jenny and Francois. There were more more. The kind of Dresner was the first and OG, and then these other guys came afterwards. So, but now we're starting to see a lot of these wines available. But the popularity of these portfolios weren't wasn't where it is now mm-hmm. and i was talking to we, we i was actually on on a, a podcast with on Discord's podcast and those guys made a good point they and it, it was this discussion about how now these natural wines have become so sought after and so hip that these young wine buyers who have little experience are offered these wines and they're just like well i know from instagram that this is cool shit and i should take it and they don't have the ability to, to, to open and taste the wine they get the wine in the case in their cellar because they're told it's cool they open a bottle to serve it to their guests and they're like oh damn this shit's fucked up <laughs> and then what are you going to do you know you like dump it down the drain you can't pour it by the glass you got to just roll with it and it's the un- and it's the hard thing and that's why you know it's like a conversation i have with zev all the time zev's a good friend of mine mm-hmm. and, and i've been with zev since the beginning of when he started this thing uh he t- he'll often talk about early pearl and ash days and how we were tasting wine with him um you know he does his best he knows it's his job to be that gatekeeper he's that middleman his name is on the back of the label that's not quite as important as your name being on the front of the label but it's pretty important because a lot of people will buy based on that back label so zev knows that and zev when he was early on in his career, he, he'll acknowledge it himself. He was taking everything he could from some of these producers. But now, he doesn't. He's to the point now where he knows he can tell his producers, hey, listen, that bottle's not interesting to me or it's, I think it's problematic. I, and, and he can have conversations and be like, I'm telling you from the other side what's happening in, in the U.S., what people are, buyers are saying. These wines could benefit from being a little bit cleaner. He can have those conversations with his – so he's doing the Lord's work in that way mm-hmm. where he's actually maybe helping. And we, him and I were talking about – vintages of producers that you know it's like anything when you're making wine like for me like i have you know i'm putting things out people are going to taste my wine one time either they're going to like it Mm -hmm. and they're not Mm -hmm. and a majority of the people are never going to go back and taste the wine again they're going to make a decision off of that one moment Mm -hmm. that one time they're going to taste it and then their mind is made up monorio is this way and i don't like it because of this or monorio is this way and i like it because of this and it benefits you both ways because you can always keep moving the wine for the people who like it people are going to continue but the wines i mean I'm my biggest critic. When I'm tasting my wines, I'm like, you know, and I'm tasting through barrels and I'm like, oh man, this barrel's definitely not going to go in the final blend. This barrel's great. This barrel's not, you know, always trying to sort it out myself. So that idea of, of how 
people are buying wines. If, if, I mean, I think we're getting back to two points here, right? These, these kids nowadays. Yeah. natural kids and, nowadays. <laughs> and natural wine, right? right? Like those are the two topics I feel like we're, we're circling uh, around. You know. Um, and so, but I, but I think that there are important things to talk about it because I think that the buyers that we're looking at maybe shaking our fist at by saying that they, I think they're just they're just as conflicted and scared as winemakers are, or just as wine critics, or anybody that's doing anything in the wine world. You're worried about being judged by your peers. You're worried about making statements that later you're going to regret. You're worried about doing things that you're I later going to regret. I probably should be worried about some of the <laughs> shit I've said. But, yeah, I uh, mean, you got You got You got You got. I think you got to. You have to believe what you believe. Well, exactly. And you have to, you right. Follow your heart. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Zev's. A lot of people may not know who Zev is. Just Zev's full name. Yeah. His company just for people. Zev Rovin. Zev Rovin Selections. Yeah. Zev. Zev and Camille Riviera are, are and Jenny and Francois. I would say those. I will give them the mm-hmm. plug of the natural wine importers that come after Dresner and me. I mean, turn those bottles around and look at those back labels. And, and, and you know, the, and Zev's, Zev's producers are all tiny, mm-hmm. uh, and, and does I think you know really really does a great job of, of bringing in some cool stuff. He brought in stuff that, you know. Nobody knew and nobody was after, and now you can't get them. You yeah, know what I mean? He used yeah. to, he was beg, he would beg me to take Octavon, this Jura producer, like, just please pour it by the glass. Anything you want, I'll give you a discount on it. And now Octavon is like, you know, allocated. And so, yeah, so it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I think the importer often is as, is as important as the producer when right. it comes to, you know, wines coming from France. And that's a long tradition. Of well, that. I tell people no, 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 no importers and no, you need to really know three things no importers, no winemakers. And no uh, vineyards, and these are all things that aren't really taught nope. in the in the mass in the mass MS and MW programs, right. like all three of those things that you talked about. Right. Yeah, and it's but it's just a different way of learning about wine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was my thing. I was like, okay, like so. I lived in Santa Barbara, so I'm like, Psh, if it comes out, if you can get fruit from Vinicito Vineyard, yeah, you're you're fucking making good wine. Because <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, like once you know that vineyard, you'd be like, oh. I'm gonna grab this Benicito, like you know. Yep. That, that's like some of the you know. Sanford like, and Benedict, Sanford another and Benedict, one, yeah, right. yeah. I mean, like you know, or like, or like you know, like you said, like Zeb, like if Kermit Lynch's name's on the back yeah. label, it's fucking good. It's great. You turn around, you see Skernick on the back label, it's gonna be fucking good. Yeah. It's, it's just like that, and and that is so much more important than it's a it's like a hack for people that they don't even know about. For sure, you know. Um, so you were having all this fun. Pearl and Ash closes. Yeah. Um, I think Eric Asimov wrote. The stresses and demands of restaurant work eventually compel many, like Patrick Capiel, to seek out other careers in wine. So, <laughs> Pearl and Ash closes. What what was what was going through your head? Yeah, I mean, and Pearl and Ash closed, and then within seven eight months afterwards, Rebel closed right next door. Mm-hmm. So you know, we were we we had partners that um, just didn't have the same vision as us, financial partners. So I was I was kind of disenchanted by a lot of things. I mean, here was a city that I felt like I was kind of on top of, and you were, I was you were was, king of New York. For a while. <laughs> I was living there for a minute, having a great time, and you know, it's like this humbling experience. We're like, well, shit, now somebody else is doing it. Like somebody else, is, like like you know, Ariel now is a hot shit. Now that's yeah. it. So you got to make room for Ariel. Ariel took it over and yeah. running the city for a bit, and you know, there'll be a, there'll be somebody else that's going to do it next, um, and that's great. But I but. I was feeling I was pretty depressed. I, I, I was I was feeling like I had worked so hard, and this was my as a kid. I imagined the idea of opening owning a restaurant, Capiello's or something. You know what I mean? Like it was going to be some, like that idea as a kid, like because the restaurants were all I knew. And I was like, I you know this is this is my destiny. I remember my brother in law being like, if you ever were ready to open a restaurant, well, I have investors. We'll invest. Like we're we're interested. We we believe in you. 
and I would never take my family's money. You know, I'm smarter than that. So thank mm. God I never did. But, um, but so, you know, I, I, it, it was, it was a crushing moment. I mean, in, in the most privileged way. I mean, I, I, how crushing could it have been? I still had my choice of any career. I could have worked for any distributor. I was going to be fine. But, mm-hmm. but I was, I just kind of been sick of the system I was living in. And also I was 45 years old. I've been working on the floor till, till 1 a.m. every night drinking with with clients and living that life and you know at some point you got to say to yourself you know i mean i don't have a family i don't i'm I'm not married anymore i don't have any kids so i had the freedom to kind of do that but it but it's still at some point i was like i kind of i kind of want to go like go to dinner like everybody else and go to the movies i want to kind of go to brunch right you know what i mean i want to be in bed by 10 o'clock i want to watch you know whatever people are watching on tv at that point (laughs) friends or i don't know what what, what people watching (laughs) something something i wasn't watching uh but so i was just in that moment where i was like i need to change my life and and uh I, but I, but I didn't really know what it was. I was going through another breakup at this time uh, with an, with my third girlfriend after my ex wife, who was a chef, and I was living in Philadelphia. We had just opened a restaurant in Philadelphia. We were we were we were consulting for a restaurant okay. in Philadelphia that we opened. I was living there for a year, and uh, I called my friend Pax, and I was he's like, "How you doing?" I'm like, "Man, I'm not great. You know, things are just kind of. I just feel like." That's the, I don't know. I don't, the, I don't. That's the sip pause. Yeah, sorry. I just was no, chugging a glass good. of wine. No, um, got to get through. I, I got to get some more some more liquid courage for telling the story. So Pax calls me and he says, "Come, come to California. Like, uh, get on a plane. Come to California." This is Pax Malley. Pax Malley. Yeah, yeah. It was my it was my my partner in this in the Monterio project and uh, mentor and best friend and yeah, great dude. Um, so we uh, he called me and I and I got on a plane and. Um, this is a few months after I'd split up with my ex, I guess. I go to, and he's like, we're going to a party. Atlanta Sonoma takes me to a party. I go to this party at a friend's house, a birthday party. And all night long, everybody's talking about this girl, Sarah. Did you meet this girl, Sarah? Did you meet Sarah? Did you meet Sarah? Did you meet Sarah? I'm like, who the fuck's Sarah? Why haven't I met Sarah? <laughs> so I go in the kitchen and like, here's this girl like making a pie. And I'm just like, <laughs> my mind just explodes. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, just like done. Like lightning struck, love struck, like out, out. I was, I was down for the count. And uh, so this girl became kind of the catalyst for me wanting to move to California. I was like, I'm going to win this girl's heart. I'm going to I'm going to have a reason to move to California. It's always about start a, girl. a winery. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was real great. Two years later, she broke my heart. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It's okay. She's under doesn't like it when I tell that part of the story. She likes it up till then. But <laughs> but but no, she was an important part of my life, and you know, yeah. became part of my company. Sarah Morgenstern, I'm talking about, who still is in the wine business and now making wine in Sonoma County. You should check her stuff out. I think I know that name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she, she, she really, because of her helping me and Pax really helping me get inspired to, to have the confidence to live out there. Those guys kind of turned me on to life in California. Yeah. It really opened my eyes to a new opportunity. I'd never spent much time in California. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this is my 20 year residence in New York currently. I'm still a New York resident. I still have my rent stabilized apartment in the Lower East Side that I can't seem to give up. And yeah. why would you? Yeah, I know yeah, it's hard. Well, Plus, I mean, I do trust me, Sonoma County. It's not the best place to be single. It's not the best place to want to go out to dinner. Definitely not the best place to want to, to want to spend COVID. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm definitely, I, you know, and, and, you know, usually we, we, you know, you have that San Francisco outlet to jump on a car and go down there yeah. an hour, hour, hour and a half south. But it's complicated uh, to live in Sonoma County as a single dude. It's it's not easy. I, so I, I, I being imagine. in New York, being in New York is important to me. Yeah, no. I mean, that's what I mean. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that prevented me from a winemaker. When I went out to Santa Barbara, I was like, yeah, I'm going to stay in Santa Barbara proper because it would mm-hmm. not be good to be single in Santa Maria or Santa Inez, bro. Not a good place. Not at all. No, no, no. It's the country is... Wine country, you better have someone. <laughs> and that's the thing. All my friends are either married in relationships. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. They don't want a third yeah. wheel hanging around. I live on Pax. So where I live in Sonoma County, I live in a single wide trailer that was put on Pax's property in the 70s. Okay. 
Um, it's a very humble little thing, but I love it. I mean, I live. It's basically the same size as my little apartment on the Lower of course, East Side. So it might even be a little bit I'm bigger. Used to it. <laughs> nah, it might actually be a tall, t- t- but I have but I have two hundred year old redwoods in my backyard that I have a hammock strung up to. Uh. So it's not too bad, not too bad. But I live on their property, so during COVID, it was you know I was able to have dinner with them. We were in our little bubble together, so it's amazing. I mean, I I live on my best friend's property and. He able to spend time with him and his wife, who's Pam, who's like the back backbone of the of Pax the Pax Winery that really does all the all the all the dirty work. And yeah. so it's great to have them in my life. And by spending time with them, I've learned a lot about this. So so going back to what my point was going to California, I needed something to do. Pax and I always talk about making wine together. And finally, he's like, let's just do it. Like let's just start small, make six hundred cases. So, but the thing that I said to him was, I was like, you know, I don't want to. And when I make this statement, whenever I say it to anybody, I don't want to offend anybody who who is defined by what i'm about to say do but. not take offense this is a legal disclaimer do not take offense yeah <laughs> by what patrick's about to say <laughs> i never wanted to be a sommelier that just put a label on a wine and said it was theirs and there's a lot of people that do that and they are brand they're and then they're the brand managers uh, there's a lot of people who do that <laughs> i don't i, I don't i'm not gonna say it but you yeah know, you know they come from different uh you know maybe Maybe, maybe they were a professional athlete. Maybe were they like, yeah. I mean, like I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah, like, yeah. When, when, I, when, I can't, like, I can't like, imagine what you're talking about. Say, I, don't, I don't even know what, but I'm just saying. I know people aren't out there with dirt under the nails um, making fucking wine is all I'm saying. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so like that's all I'm saying. So I, so I didn't want that to be me. Yeah. So I said a pack. If we're going to do this, I, it can't, I, you have to. You have to actually teach me how to make Look, wine. Look, honey, it's just, I'm sorry. It's like, <laughs> I want that barrel. That, I mean, that's not making wine, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I, could, I couldn't, I couldn't, I wouldn't do it. So I'm like, he's like, well, yeah, if you're really down for it, I'm like, I'm, yes, I'm 100% in. I'm all in. Let's do this. I, I want to, and I want to, and, and I want to be, and I don't also don't want an investor. So I was lucky enough for my time at the New York Palace Hotel. There was a 401k that was part of my, part of my structure of my job. And this thing had just filled up with not a huge amount of money. It was four years, but it was a substantial amount of money yep. uh, and enough to get me started. Yep. So I was, I, so I, my, much too much my dad's dis, 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 you know, dismay. dismay. I sold my 401k, cashed that money out, bought barrels and grapes. Pax helped me turn it into wine. That was our 2018 vintage. And then I learned a lot that year and then continued in 2019. I do everything for the winery. The, the winery doesn't have one employee. I'm the, I do everything. If you send a, a info at monoriosellers.com, Email, it comes to my phone. The terribly managed social media is done by me. But I top the barrels. I crush the grapes. I drive the forklift. I've actually become – what I learned very quickly is that most winemaking is done on a forklift with an iPhone. That's, that's how it works. Your iPhone has, <laughs> iPhone has your calculator and your flashlight, which are the two tools you need to make wine. And then driving a forklift is really the most important thing. Like every winemaker, you have to – so I, I basically spent all winter, the first year I was there – just just driving empty empty bins, um, picking bins around the winery and stacking them, and learned and little by little. Then I started carrying glass, then barrels, then tanks. Now I am proficient at driving a, a forklift, and and then you know studying the, the chemistry of wine is what I've been doing on the side to understand more about why we do what we do, temperature and all that sort of stuff. And now I have a really good grasp on it. I think at this point, Pax would confidently say I pretty much do everything for the wine. He just checks checks my work. Yeah. Like I'm like this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> I report to him, and he's like yes. That looks good, you, you, or no, that doesn't look good. So you're like you're like wine college, like he's the tenured professor, and you're the re, and you're what what is it called when you uh not is it not research assistant? Is it research assistant? 
the person who actually teaches a class and grades a paper to the professor. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes, so, exactly. He just, he's just like, yeah, the T, the his TA, is the that T, what it is? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. No, that seems, that seems right. Yeah. And I mean, I feel, you know, 2020 was my third, was my third vintage, the most complicated vintage from what I understand in California history. Um, but I felt like I really, I was really, I felt more confident in making the decisions that I knew we make and I'm understanding how the wines are made. And, you know, we, the wines are made very methodically. One of the things about being white making wine is you have to be precise and accurate and you have to be methodical. It's just, it's just without those things and clean, without those things, understanding, keeping tracks of good records of everything you're doing and constantly being like, people think it's an art. It's not an art. It's a craft. Making wine 100% is a craft. Mm. It's scientific. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there can be an artistic swagger that you have within the realm of it. Right. But for the most part, the wine's kind of making itself. In fact, the first year I was constantly tasting the wines. Pax is like, dude, stop fucking opening the barrels. Yep. Leave the wine alone. Yep. You're not going to, it's already, ha what's happening is already happened. Right. You tasting it every five minutes isn't going to, and it's <laughs> to the point now where I, don't, I literally won't taste the wine for six months at a time. I mean, when I'm in New York, I pay one of the interns to top my barrels for me if I'm not able to do it. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I'm there doing it. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, I, now I don't, there's really not, I mean, I'll, I'll check in on the wines every three or four months, but for the most part, when it's in the barrel, Cocherie from, from Burgundy, one yep. of the most famous producers said that the, the barrel is the bedroom for the wine mm. and that's where the wine sleeps. Mm. You don't fuck with it when it's, when it's in the barrel. That's why when you go to Coach, they don't barrel taste you mm. out of, out of the barrels, those barrels. And there's a hammer on the barrels. It's like a Luigi and Mario fucking <laughs> hammer from Donkey Kong that's now on the barrels. It shows they smash their bungs in so tight. So I, my bungs go way tight and I don't fuck with my wines. I top my wines every three to four weeks. Once topping's done, they don't get touched. I don't go through and taste. I don't. I just keep them in that like low non. The, the style of Monterio, you know, is very much. I don't know if we're talking about this. Yeah, yet no, or not. I was going to say. No, but no. I, I mean, um, I would. I would it's a great question. Um, <laughs> your website says that your wines are dedicated to the spirit. It's actually spirit of old California. Yes. So let's talk about Monterio. Let's yeah. talk about that spirit, the, the, even down to the style that you were about to get into, how you make the wine. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I mean, the, you know, the, the so so you know when there's a couple things that 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 inspired me to want to make wine in the way that we do. Tasting old vintages of like like BV Louis BV Le Tour, yeah, um, to old vintages of Inglenook, yep. you know, the, like uh, Louis, Mar Louis Martini, Martini, yes, all these cool old school producers that yes. I was tasting at Veritas because we had on the wine list right. from Park Beast Cellar were like, oh, wow, wow, you taste those and you taste Colgan or Bryant family, no offense, but you know what I mean? The, those wines are balls to the wall, 15 and a half, 16% alcohol, 100% new oak, no finesse, no elegance, no food friendly. The wines don't, you know, it's the old saying that the candle that burns twice as bright lasts, lasts half as long. Wines of Brian family and Colgan that are 20 years old, we were tasting 10 years old, the wines are feeling tired. They weren't feeling the way that these old school wines were. So that was one of the inspirations. Then you look at those labels, old Louis Martini, old BB um, uh, Latour, those wines had 13% alcohol Cabernet. Yeah. And... So this idea was coming along. And then, and then you know, my preference in wine that I drink, I really tend to be turned on by whole cluster wines. I love producers like Dujac in, in Burgundy, whole cluster. I love producers like Gone On in the Northern Road and Darden Rebo, whole cluster. So there's a constant theme where I, t I found that wines that were distemmed that had this kind of structure that were a little off-putting for me. And maybe with age, those wines get better. Like mm -hmm. we can talk about the, we can reference the Northern Rome producers that distem. I don't really want to call them out for for the fact, because I don't tend to really like those kind of yep. wines, but yep. they maybe are better with age. Yep. But and maybe maybe whole cluster doesn't age as well, but I've had old bottles of Dujac and they're pretty spectacular. But so this whole cluster element was important. So I wanted to understand more about how that worked. And Kelly White is a good friend of mine who wrote a book about Napa Valley. Mm -hmm. And we were having a conversation about um, whole cluster wines 
especially Zinfandel, because I'm I make Zinfandel and Mission. And yeah, these are wines that traditionally would not be made in a whole cluster fashion. So whole cluster, if your listeners aren't aware, it's when you don't take the grapes off the stems. Everything goes in there, man. Yeah. And it's and usually Sticky, a little bit of a carbon, carbonic thing yeah. that happens if yeah. you don't – we don't foot crush. So the clusters just literally go into a tank and we put a, we put a lid on it, we put some popping. gas in it, and then the little car- carbonic starts happening. Every now and again, we get in and crush it up. But this is the way Pax has made wine forever and his Syrah has all been that way. And his Syrah are a huge turn on for me because they taste like gone on. They taste like Darden Rebo, the producers that I love. Mm-hmm. So that whole cluster idea, I remember tasting with him. There's a, there's a wine called uh, Champ Libre, which is a collaboration of Darden Rebo and, um, uh, and uh, Suo. And I, the wines, I, I, been, I was actually at Discovery Wines of the day asking them for a bottle because I, I haven't seen them in a couple of years, but Dresner brought them in. But they were Ardesh fruit, Ardesh Syrah. Okay. It was like 18 bucks retail. And they and they, it was the same same process, all whole cluster, just carbonic. And it's from an area that nobody gave a shit about. Like it kind of off the off the place like Lodi right. is kind of a very similar thing, not to yeah. make a reference point to what I'm doing. But this was well, inspired. I was about Lodi. And I was like, well, yeah. But yeah, well, well, so, so, well so this idea of, of whole cluster retains freshness. But people would argue, well, t- carbonic or semi-carbonic takes away terroir. And I'm a big believer that I don't know that I necessarily believe that terroir is something that's that important anymore. Like terroir. And, so, and, and actually, I've been reading like some people like it's like is it doesn't even really exist. Like is it actually true? Like is it just, like they like it like – the myth of terroir almost. I mean, I've had some bottles of Obreon and they're pretty fucking good. <laughs> and I've had some bottles of Montrachet. I mean, but, 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 that yeah. shit is fucking great. Yeah, man. but I've also had plenty of bottles of Montrachet that suck. Yeah. Like they're like, it's a, I think it's a lot more about the way that it's being cared. It, yeah, but say, as far yeah. as regality of vineyards, I can't deny that when I taste Zinfandel that comes from one particular area or, or an age of vine, like in Lodi, we have a lot of old oh, vines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm not, I'm yeah. not. I'm but, not I, but I will I'm agree not. with you. I'm saying, I think, I mean, I've, I've said it before, like kind of fuck Montrachet. Right. Like, like uh, why are we spending this much money on a bottle of wine? Who said that this piece of land deserved to be? I mean, that's, it's outrageous. It is. It's, it's, and it's a huge sign of how fucking twisted the wine industry has become and how focused we are on, you know, like our Gucci watches or our yeah, you know, Louis Vuitton it's, bags. It's, uh, it's that same bullshit. It's yeah. like status. Yeah. Like being able to drink a bottle of Montrachet. You're trying to tell me that Montrachet tastes like it should be cost $3,000 a bottle. Nothing should cost $3,000 <laughs> a bottle. That's fucking insane. You're taking it away from the 99% of the population to be able to drink. Why should they not have the experience of understanding what makes this vineyard so magical? It's a, it's a, so I, so we make wine the opposite way. Fuck terroir. We're trying to, we're trying to mask it. We're trying to make wines that are made stylistically fresh and bright. And the places like Lodi, where it's hot and people don't want to go to because they think that the vineyards are inferior, even though some of the oldest no, no, vineyards planted in California. It's, it's just because it's Lodi, bro. Yeah. I mean, I, be, I, go, <laughs> I, mean, I go there all the time. Trust me. It's Lodi, a scary place. <laughs> Stockton. Yeah. Modesto, yeah. 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 It's a weird place, man. Central Valley is a strange I mean, place. I, I, mean, <laughs> kind of, I mean, on the wine level, it might have to do with it, but, but like, yeah. I lived in California, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hear you. But so the reason I make wine in Lodi is because Lodi, the fruit there is. I mean, a Sonoma Coast vineyard of Pinot Noir that maybe like Carlo Mondavi, who makes wine with me for rain, he yep. probably is paying four or five thousand. There's a reason his wines are more expensive than mine. He's yep. probably paying four or five thousand dollars a ton yeah. for a fruit right. from, from a very regal vineyard right. that has proven the test of time right. is 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 a special place. Right. I'm paying like eight hundred dollars a ton for fruit right. in Lodi, right. so I can because I'm spending that. The entry level for making wine, corks, labels, bottles, boxes. Delivery, all that stuff is built in when you're buying wine. You do, the only thing you have control over is the cost of your fruit. So the only when I decided I wanted to start this winery, I had a conversation with Eric Asimov, 
before I even was, I mean, I was like, really when I, the week I started making wine, mm-hmm. and I went on record saying I was gonna make wine that cost 20 bucks. And Pax was like, you couldn't have made a bigger mistake in your entire life, because making wine for 20 fucking dollars is not easy. Yep. And he's 100% right. To make these wines, the, and the price point here is 18, 23, 23. We make uh, Sauvignon Blanc that's 20 bucks. We make, you know, the, the it's so so there's, 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 a lot of value packed into what we're doing. Yeah. And we cut, we, we try to not cut. We try, we try to, we try to cut as many corners as we can to try and pass on what we're, what we're doing to, to, to give to our, to our, to our clients. Yeah. I had another guest on this family's making wine. That's kind of their philosophy. They don't want like their most expensive wine is like 25 bucks. It's great. And I, yeah, but they could easily charge fifty for it, like easily. And yeah. it, at, at fifty, it would be a fucking steal. Still, yeah. you know what I mean. Um, and and I, I, that's so cool. I mean, that's admirable. And so let's talk about. Um, so is that just the appeal, Lodi? It's cheap grapes, but is old vines cheap grapes? What? It, what it well, was? yeah. So also old vines. So this year actually. So amazing that this year I, I'm, I'm going to be making wine from the four oldest vineyards in Lodi, and they're four of the oldest vineyards in Northern California, actually, maybe in all of California. Um, and it was because of social media and because of making the wines that we did that this whole thing is happening. Um, there's a kid named Jesus who is the assistant winemaker at Jesse's Grove in Lodi, and he cold called me on Instagram, wrote me a DM on Instagram, and basically said, "Hey man, like I just I wanted to let you know." that um, we've been drinking your wine all during harvest and you like make us so proud to be from Lodi and to be making mm-hmm. wine in Lodi. He's like, we have these old vineyards in the family winery that I, that I make wine with that we would love for you to get some fruit from and, and make some wine from. And he gave me the whole rundown about the vineyards. And I was like amazed that this kid like just reached out. We and Pax and I got in a car, went and hung out to spend the day with Jesus. He showed us the vineyards. He's like a 28 year old kid. Like, I think he's like maybe second generation mm-hmm. um, in living, living in the Lodi area, or maybe SAC, somewhere, somewhere in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a young kid and and just really passionate, driving us around the golf cart, showing us these, these vineyards. The vines, um, oh, three vineyards. One, one of the oldest vineyard is Bechtol Vineyard, which which uh, Tegan makes for Turley. That's right. Baby. 1886, own rooted Sinso. I'm making I... that this year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got. It. I'm buying a case. I fucking love since I'm making like a ton and a half. It's gonna be so small. I'll make sure I get you some. Give me, give me, at least give me like three bottles. I got bro, you. Like, I got you. I got you. I, listen, I've been crushing that wine, yeah. man. So good. It's so fucking good. And then the other vineyard, Jesse's Grove, is uh, it's um, Carignan and Golden Chasselas co co planted in uh, and that's planted in 1889. And then there's a 1900 planted Zinfandel vineyard that's planted, co-planted with a bunch of other heritage vines, like Mission, Black Muscat. There's a bunch so of other crazy are you shit. Do in there. a field blend from that one. Well, that's yeah. I mean, it's, it's mainly Zin, so yep. they're picking the Zin out for me. There'll be probably a little bit of clusters, but that'll be more. That's going to be the ancient vine series, is what we're going to do. And then Tegan Pasolaco from Sandlands is getting me a little bit of Kirchman fruit from his old Zin, his 19, 1912 planting. Some of that. Too. Yeah. <laughs> I need some of that. Too. So those will all be like uh, 150 <laughs> bottles. They're going to be a new kind of different. This going to be this label, but like a different sketch drawing on yep. it. It's going to be ancient vines. It'll be super limited, but we're, we're same thing. We're gonna keep the price point at you know around twenty five bucks. Like try to keep it affordable because I, I think those are it's such an important part of the heritage of California, and I think it's important that people get to taste those wines. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want the whole idea behind the winery. When I was a server, reading this Kevin's Rally book, yep. I couldn't afford to, afford to buy any of these wines that I had. And now look at how much more expensive those wines are. So if you're a young person coming up and you're interested in drinking wine, even just having a casual Tuesday night bottle of wine, but I don't want you to have to drink like chemical ridden wines and I don't know you know I don't, I don't want to like dog on any big company but like companies that make mass produced wines that are mainly chemicals yep. you know what I mean yep. like consolation <laughs> <laughs> you know and and and, and 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 you know and make and make these moves like you know you know certain wines were supposed to be made from like 
certain counties and yeah. now they've just, now they're just changed to California. Yes, completely. Yeah. And that's why we started the skull with with California from the get because I'm like, you know what? Let's be honest. Right. I don't know if I'm going to be able to use these same vineyards for this for this wine forever because they're going to get more expensive. Yeah, yeah. And I all I can promise you is that the that the wine is going to be delicious and it's going to be made naturally. That's the sort of that's the, you have my certification that with Monterio's name on it. That's the way that the wines are going to be made. And I'm going to work from the best vineyards that I can. But a perfect example of terroir and the con and kind of the thing that we were just talking about. Pax made Mission from this vineyard as okay. well mm-hmm. called Summers. And he's like, are you going to put the name of the vineyard on, on your wine? I'm like, I don't want to put the name of the vineyards on any of my wines because, first of all, I don't know if I'm going to be able to continue to work with them if they if things happen. But second of all, I'm still figuring out what I am. Like, you already established who you are. You know. He's like, well, the, you know, the, the farmers love it when you do that. That's a, a nice thing for them. I'm like, I get it. But what happens if, you know, like that, that pro- becomes problematic for you in the future? And, of course, Andre Mack, who we're talking about, who loves the wine, wrote a super kind article for Bon Appetit, put mine and Pax's mission in, in the article, and Pax is right on the front of the fucking bottle, says Summer's Vineyard. And I, now I find out from my farmer, he's like, yeah, because he's like, yeah, all of a sudden people, I don't know what it is, but people are starting to be interested in the fruit now. Exactly. The cost is going up now, exactly. and then we're going to get you less tonnage. And I'm like, here's the problem with that. Like, things were fine the way they were. Why all of a sudden – now, the only in, the only person that wins, the only person that loses are on the other end of the spectrum. Absolutely. The only person that wins is the, is the farmer or the owner of the vineyard who are just being greedy and want to make more money because more people are paying attention to them. And the only person that loses is the consumer because I can't eat that cost. All that means is my mission is going to have to be more expensive. And for the first three vintages, I haven't raised my prices at all, even though corks have gotten more expensive, labels, mm-hmm. bottles, everything has gotten more expensive. But I'm committed to – I think this price point is so important – I want my brother-in-law to be able to walk into a bottle, a, a wine shop, and be like, "I know I can depend on this bottle of wine, and it's at a cost that I want to pay for it." So that's more important to me because the the big guys have that have that corner have that market cornered. They can do they can work on margins, they can negotiate, they can buy grapes from other places, they can continue to own that space and continue to poison you with wines that are full of chemicals. So I want to I want to disrupt that. I want to disrupt that. Just like with Pearl and Ash when we ha- made a wine list that was natural wine and, and, and classic wine, and they were all priced really, really cheap. I was trying to disrupt the system. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, go, why just because we're told that you need to have a four-time markup in order to write in a red beverage cost for a restaurant, why do we have to, why do we have to believe that? Mm-hmm. Why, there can be another way. If we sold more wine, we could use lower margins and actually still make the same amount of money at the bottom line. And having conversations with accountants about this was not an easy thing to do, especially after working in corporate restaurants for so long. So that same sort of thing is, is on here. So again, that... That's what I mean by making wine in the spirit of old California. California was about jug wine. It was about box wine. It was about table wine. It was about wine to drink with your dinner. It wasn't about some regal thing with a vineyard. And What is that one? I mean, it was Carlo Rossi, uh, yeah. Red Burgundy. Yeah. People, that shit was like 80% old fine Zinfandel. Sure. And, like, I mean, I, and it was a big, I mean, like, yep. that, that now are probably in like these $60, $70 single finger bottles. Yeah. It's but true. like, that's what it was, you know? If it wasn't for those things, we wouldn't have had these vineyards. I always right. say that about White Zin. As much as people want to dog on White Zinfandel, if White Zinfandel didn't exist, th- those vineyards would have been ripped up and planted Sa- to Merlot. Yeah, wait, or- save the California wine industry because, 100%. Because even after Judgment of Paris, people, most people still didn't give a shit about fucking California it's so wine. True. So, so in the seventies and eighties, it was white Zen. Mm-hmm. And to your point, I said all the time, they would have ripped up those. And it's still sad. It's sad how many petite Syrah vineyards got ripped up in Napa uh, because of the cab and Merlot boom. Totally. Like, I mean, I, you know, it, that's the nostalgia of me. But like, you're, you're like, you're ripping up like eighty year old vines. 
to plant some fucking Merlot. Like, it's crazy. Like, just make some fucking wine, which would right. been growing here that you know works. Especially when you don't have to, you you don't you don't see something like sideways coming, exactly. where where a total grape varietal was completely canceled. Yeah. Because of because uh, what's his name said fuck Merlot. I'm, like, not, I'm not drinking any I mean, Merlot. I'm not drinking any fucking Merlot. I mean, I mean it was. It was <laughs> Cancel. I mean, were those? I, I. That's a good point. I'm like, but were those people really drinking Merlot anyway? I mean, I think Merlot definitely was living in the mainstream comfortably until 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 that was until that movie came out. And the bigger problem was the farmers freaked out and they all fucking grafted over these Merlot vineyards of Pinot Noir. And now there's a glut of Pinot Noir that farmers can't sell again. Like Pinot Noir prices are about to start plummet. And 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 think about what it did to the to the integrity of Pinot Noir. Like Pinot Noir was planted. At this point, was planted very sporadically because it's a very difficult grape yep. to work work with, yep. and farmers were being sensitive about what they planted it to try and plant it at the best possible places to right. produce the best possible right. wines. Right. And now, somebody says Pinot Noir is new hot shit. I'm going to plant it anywhere. I have grape I have right. vines, graft everything over, and now Pinot Noir, I think, lost a lot of its luster from California. Like how much Pinot Noir? I mean, Santa Barbara was producing some of the best, and now it's there's so much Pinot Noir that I think it gets the water is so muddied now that I think I have a hard time referencing like. If I'm looking at a wine list and there's California wine on it, there's very, very rare that I'm going to pick a bottle of California Pinot Noir, which is sad because the, there's there's some great vineyards like we talked about down south. I mean, Raj Parr has been doing great things with Domaine mm-hmm. Lacote mm-hmm. and, 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 and other stuff down there. So, and there's obviously like Jim Clendenin and Bob Lindquist. Those guys were t- had, you know, had set the standard. So, But I don't drink much California Pinot Noir as a whole. I would, I, I'm more looking for Trousseau and Mission and Zinfandel and hip shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, and, yeah. And, and why did that happen? Because we got inundated with Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir was was all that it was about. It was all about Pinot. Well, for me, that movie was funny just because, like, if you knew Pinot Noir, it was just like, it's, like I said, it's so hard to grow. It's so fucking finicky. And then and then understanding, like, good Pinot Noir usually used to cost, it costs money, man, because it's not a lot of it planted. It's so, true. Like, so, like, you're right. Like, when to plant all those Pinot Noir, anyway, I get it. I get it, people. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I think there's there's not no now like I said people like Rain and other, and other other people that are making Pinot Noir that are spectacular in California oh, well, I mean, are highlighting and, Steve and that's a Kistler's good thing. Actually, yeah. his Occidental yeah. since he doesn't own Kistler anymore, Occidental is really yep. killer. Um, that's a town I live in in Sonoma oh, County. <laughs> oh, truth comes out. Um, which uh, tell me about so which of your wines are you most proud of to date? Um, well, I mean, I think what we're doing with the Chardonnay is, is uh, which we just tasted the second wine we mm-hmm. tasted, I think is pretty exciting. I mean, I love the skull wines because we're using, utilizing the same fruit that we're doing the single varietal bottling, but we're making them super affordable. But like Chardonnay, this, this wine is probably the most worked wine that we have. Um, and it, we do it because it's kind of funny because I don't really like California Chardonnay, at least in the, the, the typical, you know, buttery, oaky, fruity style. So we try to do everything we can to like resist and, 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 and do the opposite. So the Chardonnay is like we do um, ferments in stainless steel, really warm ferments. So the the funny – the thing that I learned from Pax was an amazing kind of aha moment, light bulb moment for me. It, we talk about, you know, so many producers that make Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in California and they make, you know, these winemakers go to California or to, to Burgundy and they, they do a harvest with Dujac or a harvest with Rumier and they come back like this is how they do it in Burgundy. They do cold soaks and they do long ferments and this is the way we're going to do it. And so they make wine the exact the way they make it in Burgundy and Pax is like the problem is, is that in Burgundy they do long cold soaks and they do cold ferments and long ferments because long cold ferments bring out fruity esters in wines. It makes them more fruity. Where, because in Burgundy, the sun doesn't shine. But, but if you already have ripe fruit, exactly. Why are you doing that? So if you're taking something that's already fruity and you're, you're amplifying the fruitiness, it just becomes kind of smack over the head. So 
the way we make our Chardonnay is we try to, we do, we do warm, we do very hot, fast ferments. So a hot, fast ferment brings out the savory notes. It brings out um, um, more of the minerality in the wine and it brings in that fruitiness. So we do these in stainless steel, the fermentation of the Chardonnay, and it's a pretty open space. We put it in the shed, which is the ambient temperature room next to us, about 85 degrees. The fermentation rips, it gets more mineral in style. And then when the, when it's about three bricks of sugar left, we put it into old wood and we leave it in old wood barrels for about four months. And um, once once the four months are up, we put it back up in stainless steel and it stays in stainless steel, really compact, no air for two months. And what that does, you know, when, when the wine is in barrel, uh, it's oxygen exposed, it's more relaxed, it's more chill, it's getting richer, it's getting more, you know, fruity. It's like just chilling out, man. And then when you put it into the stainless steel structure, it's something that Three very famous producers in Burgundy, and I'm not comparing my wine to them at all, but Rouleau, Domaine Lefleuve, mm-hmm. and Raveneau all do this process where they put it into stainless steel for months before they bottle it. And Rouleau would say the reason that he does that is because it prepares the wine for the shock of going in the bottle. But what it really does, and he, he's right, it does do that, but what it additionally does is it makes wine fucking reductive. It gives it that smoky, you know, flinty, matchsticky yeah, yeah. thing. Yep, yep. And that, again, buries down the fruit. So us trying to encourage reductiveness in wine, all of our wines are reductive. We keep oxygen out as much as we can. We top, we top frequently. We don't open the barrels much. We keep, we, we usually rack the wines in a stainless for a month or so before we bottle. We want more reduction because reduction gives the wine more, more ability to age without having to put as much sulfur. Like that's one of the things that when we're testing our wines, we're tasting through the barrels. The barrels that are more reductive tend to go into the final blends of the single varietal wines because more reduction means less sulfur has to be added mm-hmm. and we can mm-hmm. check the chemistry of the wine and understand that. So it's all intentional. So that's kind of the, the, the style of it. And so for me, the Chardonnay is kind of the wine I'm most proud of because we we do that thing. And this year, we made Sangiovese from a biodynamically farmed vineyard in Lodi, which is probably the wine I think most proud of from 2020. That comes out. We're bottling that in um, in uh, August. And Did I tell you about my love for Calatalis? No. Oh, my God. Really? Oh, oh my gosh. God. I'm definitely saying that. Well, I fucking love California Sangiovese. I would love to try it. I mean, gonna... I, I, mean I, I just think... It bec- and that's the beauty of California, right? Like, so when it's done right, the fruit's a little bit riper than it gets in Tuscany. Mm-hmm. And but just just the, the the flavors you get and you know it's it's like it's like Chianti on steroids for sure you know yeah I, I, I love it. so oh oh I'm glad I asked <laughs> he's very proud of it yeah. and the, and this year we're bottling that actually in a uh, limited supply of uh, Chianti fiascos the oh, straw yeah, the yeah, straw yeah, bottles yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah but in magnums only so we're doing we're doing like fifty cases of magnums of oh, of straw yeah I'll send you one that's what's up I'll send you one yeah yes, I think yes. uh, uh, Frank uh, uh, John Patterson from Frank Weinbart is going to pour it by the glass so red sauce joint like on the table yeah, like yeah. Olive Garden style that's sweet that's sweet <laughs> um, and. Um, any plans with like the whites? I mean, because you're in, I mean, any like Albarino aspirations, any Spanish royals, anything? Right no, there right now? I mean, I, I'm making a little Vermentino this year to go yeah. into the, to go into the white blend. Okay. Um, we need, we need, uh, this year, because I don't have access to the Riesling or the Claret that I use last year, uh, we want, we need to have fewer more aromatic varietals going in there. So mm-hmm. there's a, there's a Vermentino vineyard that, Pax works with in Lodi. That's another farmer friend of ours that I really liked. So I'm going to be making a little bit of that for the for the white blend. Um, we still make well, we didn't make French Columbard in 2020 because I got such a small amount of it. It wasn't enough, so it went into this blend. So the French Columbard will be back in 2021. Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, we'll, we'll make again the white blend. Those are kind of all the white wines. But what we're doing in 2021, which is pretty exciting with the Monterio um, white, is we're actually going to carbonate some and make a sparkling wine, an $18 force carbonated sparkling wine. Oh, sure. So Abe Schoner did it one year with a wine called Blowout. It was really great. And he hasn't done it since. I don't really know why he never did it again. But, you know, this idea of like, it's such a 
taboo thing. Talk about carbonating your wine, but we drink fucking white claws. We drink Modelo. We drink, you know, Lacroix, like Lacroix, whatever the fuck it yeah, is. Yeah. Everything you drink is fucking carbonated. Yeah, yeah. Why is it so bad to carbonate wine? Why so is it such a taboo thing? Water, man. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, so we're we're gonna do it, and, and if we can, because the process of making wine sparkling is what makes sparkling wine so expensive. So I want to make an eighteen dollar bottle retail bottle of and sparkling, wine. I and I want people to be able to like make mimosas at the restaurant with it. All the stuff that you would want to do with a sparkling wine. But make it affordable. So forced carbonating. So we're we've been experimenting the last year with it, and I think we're I think we're ready to go with it. This year we're gonna we're gonna have it out. Bottle cap, little champagne bottle, super simple. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So um <clears throat> I'm gonna switch gears a little bit um as we're coming, uh, you know, coming to a close. We got <laughs> sure. some more time. Um I mentioned earlier in your intro that you're an avid vinyl collector. <laughs> tell me about your tell me about your collection. So I tell do, me about your collection. Man. I do collect a lot of vinyl. Yeah. I I uh the one of the things that attracted well, attracted me to vinyl. First of all, my 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 brothers both collected vinyl, and my mom. So I have I have both of their collections as as they gave up record players that are part of my collection, and they all they all you know it was a lot of classic rock. My mom was a big fan of the Beatles, even though I don't necessarily love the Beatles. My brother was a big Zeppelin fan and Bowie fan, so that was a big part of my start. But the one thing that I, I also grew being born in 1972, I grew up in the 80s, so new wave was a huge part of my life. And if you want to talk about a sweet spot in the vinyl world, that was really when vinyl was you know on top there was every producer was making vinyl records and when you go to record and there was a lot of it made so if you're in hunting in record shops you're finding a lot of new wave music so it just kind of like re kind of like re-infused me with this love for new wave music and and now so it's let's like, talk yeah. about new wave music <laughs> Man, so, where do you want to start? Come on, Where do you want to start? Are you a Flock of Seagulls I guy? Love Seagulls. I, I have a, yeah, Human League. I love Ultravox. Is, Ultra is, one, is, one, is one that I love a lot. Oh my God, I could, yeah, I could go. Come I could on, go. Yeah, go, yeah. Susie the Banshees. Depeche Mode for sure. Duran Duran. Susie the Banshees. Yeah. <laughs> Duran Duran. Duran Duran. Yeah. No, oh they're my, a, oh, it's all oh. a huge part of my collection. I mean, because I'm, I'm, so I'm four years older than you. So same, pretty same. So like, um. I have like just and I just MTV. I was thirteen like when MTV came out, yeah. man. So like all that I have, like I love all that shit that you wouldn't think I like or would like. I mean, fucking Patty Smith and yeah. uh, you know, and uh, Scandal, yeah. Oh my god, I so great, vital, you know, uh, the Queen. Uh, yep. Another one bites the dust. That was a big one in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. But but like yeah, Gary Newman. Yep. Um, shit. It's a it was an amazing time for music. I mean, think about the amount Psychedelic of artists. First. Yeah, Psychedelic first. I love yeah for right. sure. Uh, so just great. Pull out every John Hughes movie soundtrack. <laughs> exactly. That's all. Yeah. Oingo yeah. Boingo. Oingo Boingo. Oh my God, dude. Oingo Boingo. <laughs> that's a guy. I have like I have like every Oingo Boingo. They're they're uh, yeah yeah no they're the Cure for sure the Smiths. I mean yeah yeah there's so yeah those are all. Um, all huge part of my. I, I'll, I'll send you an invite to my Discogs. So oh you can, yeah, you can, you can oh, see yeah. my collection. Oh cool. cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can buy a ton of shit from Discogs. Yeah. Um, like um, I just so I just smile and like, like look at all this. I have, <laughs> I have records that aren't even open. <laughs> so yeah. stupid. Man. Same. Like when you collect records, like I was like I haven't I really let that go a couple years ago. But like when I was I was like I, I'm going through and I'm like oh shit, it's not even open yet, man. Yeah. You no, know? it's true. You buy stuff and right. you put it, stick it aside, and you get on with your life, and you go back to it. Yeah. It's... And the fun stuff. Do you do you prefer like 
doing the 180 gram reissues or are you like going to the stores and finding I like the old school stuff I'm, I'm not I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily sold on the fact that those that those thick ass records that make a difference I mean I, I've talked to a lot of record store owners and they're like how think about why would that make a difference just right. because it's thicker it's like right. it's like it's like having a thick bottle of wine right like why does that make it right. any better just because it's in a giant bottle of wine that weighs twice the amount of wine that... better to hit some upside the head but if they but if the remastered you know I mean I definitely have masters of of stuff some Bowie stuff that, that aren't great you you know, it's, yeah. you know, I've learned a lot about the eras of when of where they were produced, and now I'm a big, I'm a big first person on the backside of the of the of the records and understanding the the pressing. Like we we're talking about with wines, like yeah. what's on the back, you got to read your labels. Yeah. Um. Do what correlations do you see between wine and music? I mean, a lot. I think you know. I think that it's 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 it, it's amazing how the music world and the wine world come together. I mean, I have a lot of friends that are musicians. Maynard James Keenan is a good buddy of mine from Tool, who makes a okay. wine called Caduceus. And you know, I, I've him and I have consumed a lot of bottles of wine together. But also, I've had a chance to go out and work harvest with him a little bit. So you know, I see you know his passion. I think he I think he likes making wine more than he likes music. Obviously, it takes Tool like fucking 10, right. 15 years to come out with an album. Right. You know, uh, <laughs> so but he he also has three bands, but. I think when I when I t when I the more I get to know Maynard as as a friend, the more I realize he just makes music to make enough money to supply his bad habit of making wine. <laughs> like he has every trinket. Like we walked into his lab at, at the winery, and Pax and I are like, "Holy fuck!" Every I mean, the like. NASA style like computer systems of being able to analyze wine. He has every gadget that you could possibly imagine. Hey, like I'll talk to him on the phone and he'll be like, I, 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 so like, what's up? You guys going on tour soon? He's like, I got to tell you about, I bought new, I bought new cement eggs. They got their rent. He's like, all, all he wants to do is talk about that. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So, I mean, I think that there, uh, the art of making music, right, in a lot of ways is like the art of making wine. We talked about is it really an art or is it a craft? Mm -hmm. And it's, it is so methodical and it's so important. So, Same with music. That's what I'm saying. So those those things collaborate in the way that yeah. they are made, yeah. but also in the appreciation of it, right? I mean, like, you know, when, when you think about a bottle of wine, it's – there's a what are the what are the reasons why that bottle of wine turns you on? You know what I mean? What is the reason that that song turns you on? It's the way it makes you feel. That the, the moment you first heard it, the moment you first tasted it, it's a reference point. You know what I mean? Yes. And music, it's a marker. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I feel like I feel like that that's wow. the way they're they they kind of go in hand in hand as well. So speaking of which, bottle of wine that really just sent you over the moon. You're like, oh man, I'm, I really want to learn more about wine. Well, my epiphany wine, when, when I was working at Tribeca Girl, I was still a server. Yoshi handed me a bottle of Clos Vougeot 1990 from Domaine Lerrois in Burgundy. And, you know, I, it was just a matter of if – you, if you look at those wines, like in the end now, those wines are so expensive. And I'm not a bottle of wine I would ever drink. But, you know, it was this, this thing about this bottle of wine where it just had all of this energy – that was just coming together at just the very right point at that moment, whatever I was working and I was running my ass off serving tables. Yoshi handed me the glass, told me what it was. I kind of half heard what it was. I remember smelling it and it was just like bursted out of the glass. And then when I tasted it, it was like an explosion in my mouth. It was just enough, enough markedly different because I hadn't had a lot of fine wine at this point. I was just tasting stuff that tastings, current vintage, a lot of like, you know, for, there wasn't a lot of expensive wine being open around me. Mm -hmm. Tribeca Grill, it was a, you know, a restaurant that people were going to see if they could see Robert De Niro as opposed to going to drink wine. So there wasn't these magical bottles being opened like it was later. So it was probably just this moment where oh, there's something that was markedly different was put in front of me mm -hmm. and I felt and I saw and I was like, okay, this is fucking different. Why is this different? And then it like triggered something in my mind to realize that I needed to start understanding more. I wanted to understand why that wine affected me a different way. And in the end, I mean, I had 
I, I think I bought a few of those bottles with the intent of buying, mm-hmm. of drinking them. And I at one point looked at how much they were worth. And I'm like, I am definitely not drinking these bottles of wine. I like sold them so I could yeah, buy. Exactly. Some, sold I guess sold them so I could buy some wine I actually wanted to drink and afford to share with some of my, with my friends. I think I sold them to buy like Gone On or Darden Rebo. <laughs> like no bottle of wine. I just, oh, I, you know, for me, it's like a bottle. I like, I'm, if you follow me on Instagram, you see I, I do drink some good fancy bottles of wine from time to time. I'm just lucky enough to have generous friends and be in the right As place I at the right time. Yeah. Exactly. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. This is not I, bottles I'm buying. I, don't want yeah. to wine, get some rich friends. Exactly. I couldn't imagine. I mean, like, sit by, like I, going to a restaurant with friends and wanting to buy, and people buying a bottle of wine that costs over $500 makes me uncomfortable. I just, I just feel like it's just, you're feeding that problem that's making wine elitist and, and not approachable and more expensive. And I don't want to, I don't want to feed into that anymore. I, I want, I want, I, we need to turn things back. Like we're turning things so back in so many ways right now in our society and rethinking the way that we, the way that we look at life and look at the world, whether it's with diversity or kindness or love, all the things that we're talking about. I think wine needs to go through that same revolution. I think we need, we need to tear down some of these old fashioned ways of the way that we were looking at wine and doing things because who are we really benefiting? Who's really, in the end, who's benefiting from this? A very small percentage of people that already have enough money. We don't need to be feeding into that. We, wine, we need, we need, I think we need to be focusing energy on producers that are, that are trying to do things correctly and, and not just in the way that they're made naturally, but ethically, the way that they have their wineries set up and, you know, what they're doing for the community. Like, you know, Monterio is committed to that. We're, you know, we're, we, 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 one of the things that breaks my heart is living in Sonoma County is that it's just people that look like me. And living in New York City for 20 years, I'm very used to seeing people that don't look like me. I mean, look at the room we're in right now, the yeah. three people that were here. Yep. Like, it's, yep. it's so in Sonoma County, it's a bunch of fucking rich white people. And there's nothing I hate worse than sitting in a, sitting in. So we're committed to the idea of diversity. And it's very challenging because we, we want to hire a person of color to be our first employee of Monrio. But there are only a few people that even live in, in Napa and Sonoma County that are of color that, are, that have the experience to yeah, help. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, and, and it's a huge See, that's, problem. That's a, that's, that's a challenge. going to be a challenge. But I it's love that. It's a huge that. challenge. Yeah. Oh my God! So, I got a new friend. I'm a fuck with this guy. <laughs> I got a new friend. I like him. We could we could talk for like a few more hours, but I know you're busy as hell and you, you got shit to do mm-hmm. and you got to get back to California at some point. I'm headed back next week. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. But yep. man, thank you for taking some time. I'm glad we made this thank shit you. fucking happen. This is so much. It's fun. amazing. It's fucking rocking. Uh, Patrick, tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing. Um, you can always go to the website, monoriosellers.com. Uh, what I prefer to do is that you support your local wine shop and buy the wines through there. If they don't have them, just ask them to buy them. But, um, you know, I think uh, keeping wine shops and restaurants going by supporting the wine programs that they're, that, they're, that they're working is the best way to do it. So I sell my wine in a lot of restaurants in New York. We're in over 20 states now across the country. So try to, try to get your local restaurant or wine shop to buy it. That helps me, but it also helps you. Awesome, awesome. All right, everybody. So it's MJ, another fucking great episode <laughs> of the Black Wine Guy Experience. Uh, until next time, cheers to the Mavericks. Definitely Patrick qualifies. Philosophers, that too. I think he even majored in that. <laughs> Definitely a deep thinker. And he is a righteous wine drinker. Everybody, cheers. Thanks, Patrick. Cheers. Thanks, MJ. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 